Thank you, Father, that when we come home, we're met like the woman in this video with a warm embrace when we deserve something entirely different. I thank you that your grace is real and that your love is limitless, that it is unconditional from start to finish. I thank you that you never grow tired of us. Thank you that you never grow tired of me. Thank you for being a, a patient and loving father. Thank you for being faithful. I pray that you would use our time and your word this morning to encourage us. I pray that it would be more than an intellectual exercise, but that your truth would come and invade our hearts in a way that is like a breath of fresh air, like a warm blanket when we are cold and shivering. I pray that you would come and speak to us in power today. I need that. So do my friends. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Oh. Well, I met my friend Jason when I was living in Alkmaar, Holland, which is a town about 30 minutes north of Amsterdam. Back in 2005, I lived there for about a year, um, having the privilege of serving as a youth pastor with some missionaries who are DTS grads. Uh, in the year following my graduation of, of, of uh, college at UT. And one of the coolest things that God graciously allowed me to be a part of during the year that I was in Holland was watching my friend Jason come to trust in Jesus. Jason was a rough character. When I met him, uh, I think he was wearing baggy pants that were probably halfway down his behind. Uh, he had a flat, bim, brim, uh, flat bill, baseball hat, earring, and tattoos. He was somewhat of a Dutch version of a gangster. And uh, even after trusting Jesus, what, what I watched in Jason's life was that he continued to have, have a very difficult struggle with sin. He was entrenched in a culture of partying. He spent most of his time drinking, smoking marijuana, and chasing girls. And it didn't really surprise me because what I knew about his story was that he had grown up in a home, a crazy home, with a mom who had a very skewed moral compass. She would tell him to do things like go and steal bicycles for his younger siblings. Um, his dad was nowhere in the picture, and soon after that, his mom gave up on him and kicked him out, and he bounced around from foster home to foster home, and eventually dropped out of high school, and when I met him, it had been a couple, two or three years since he had really been in any type of uh, stable environment. So needless to say, Jason was having a difficult time learning to follow Jesus, I have no doubt that he was redeemed. I have no doubt that he trusted in Christ and that he was a new creation. But what I saw was that there were many parts of his life, and really, even more importantly, many parts of his heart that practically needed to be bought back and made new. 
He was new in Jesus, but his life was not yet in conformity with his identity, his, his position in Christ. Now, I'll tell you about Jason because I am exactly like Jason, and so are you. Now, you may not have the same life story and the same struggles as him, and, and I may not either, but here's what I'm talking about. Even though you and I may be redeemed followers of Jesus, even though we've been declared righteous and we're new creations in Christ, there are parts of your heart, there are parts of my heart, there are parts of your life, there are parts of my life that need to practically be bought back and made new. Christ has purchased them with his life, death, and resurrection, but our lives and our hearts are not in conformity with who he is completely yet. Trusting and following Jesus doesn't magically make your baggage disappear. It doesn't happen like that. After we repent and we return home to the Father, we still have traces of the far country in us. Like Gomer, we are still prone to wander. We are still bent to unfaithfulness. And thankfully, God's work in us doesn't end when we get home. He has a plan for us as we learn to live and trust Him at home. The question is, what does God want for you after you come home? What is God's plan for you and for me after we come home and we're now living in His house? What does He want for us? As we look at Hosea 14, that's what we're going to be, be talking about today. If you need a Bible, there's a blue one there in the back of the pew in front of you. And for the sake of time today, we're going to focus in on verses 4 through 8. And right now I want to read verses 4 and 5, and then we'll jump down. We're going to read verse 4 and the first part of 5, and then we're going to jump down to verse 8. So look at verse 4 with me. It says, I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. And jump down to verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. So it's really important as we kind of walk through this text. There's a lot of imagery in these verses and, and stuff that we kind of have to unpack. But first of all, in these verses that I just read, I want to point out something. And that is that the subject of all of these verses is the same. The subject is God. It is the Lord. He is the one talking here. And so he, what he says he will do here is really important. And I want us to, 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 to catch this. First of all, in verse 4, he says, I will heal their apostasy. He's saying he will heal Israel of their apostasy. And what he means is that the first part of his plan for when Israel comes home is that he will rid them of their idol worship. He will clean them and, and, and change them so that they no longer bow the knee to false gods. Now, 
Israel has already demonstrated that they don't have what it takes to do this on their own. And so what God is declaring here is he's saying, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. After you come home, after you repent, after you're here, I'm going to do for you what you have demonstrated that you cannot do for yourself. It's really important that we catch this because God does the same thing for us. When we get home, God wants to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He wants to heal us from our unfaithfulness and our idolatry. He wants to change us. But the scary thing about it is that in order to do so, he has to use a knife. But we don't have to be afraid because God knows what he is doing. Many of you in this room, I don't know everyone, but I know that some of you have undergone surgery in your lives. Is that correct? Yeah. Various forms, whether that be you know, on your knee, on your throat, on your leg, whatever. We've gone, some of us have undergone surgery. Just like your surgeon had the wisdom and the skill and the right motivation to take his knife of a scalpel and go in and remove the thing that was harmful and causing you pain and suffering, our Father knows exactly what we need, and He knows exactly what He is doing. And so, when He comes in with that knife of the scalpel, we don't have to be afraid, because He is the great physician, and He brings His scalpel of the Spirit into our lives, into our hearts, to begin removing things that are dead in us and robbing us of the joy that it is to know him. He cleans out our baggage as we trust him with our pain and allow him to treat our wounds. As we read in Hosea 6, I just want to read it again. It says, Come let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. I can't help but read that verse and think of God like a surgeon. He brings this scalpel, he brings the Spirit to bring healing. He doesn't haphazardly, without any plan, come into our lives and cause pain. He does it all to bring healing, to bring us more of him. And so we don't have to be afraid. The question for you and for me is this. Will we trust God? Will we believe that he knows what he's doing and that he loves us? And will we stay on the operating table while he goes in with his scalpel? Will we stay put and let him do the work that is necessary for our own healing? Let's look at verse 4 again. It says, I will heal their apostasy. Then he says, I will love them freely. This is God's declaration, his vow to love his bride, Israel, no matter what. What he's saying here is, my love for you is not predicated on anything. It has nothing to do with what you do for me. It's not going to be dependent upon that. It's not conditional. It's not withheld until further notice. It is yours and it is free. Just like the, the husband in this video welcomed back his pregnant wife, who's pregnant with another man's child, God reaches in and says, I'm going to love you despite all of your unfaithfulness. 
and I'm going to continue to love you no matter what. That's what he's saying to Israel. And he explains in the next line, look at it with me. He says, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. For my anger has turned from them. So because of Israel's repentance, because they've come home to God and acknowledged their sin and asked him to forgive them, in his mercy, he has chosen to do that. And now he's renewing his vow to love them. He is no longer mad at them. His, his wrath has been appeased because they have come home. We need to hear this too. God's love is completely free. He chooses to love you. He chooses to love you. He doesn't love me. He doesn't love you based on what we do for him. He loves us based on who he is. He is love. And if we have trusted in Christ, God's anger has been turned away from us because Christ's death and resurrection absorbed all of God's wrath. And so his sinless life, his death, his resurrection have made it possible for you and I to have a position with God where he is forever satisfied with us. Zero anger towards our sin anymore. Absolutely zero. Because it's been poured out on his son. Because of Jesus, it's possible for him for, for God to see you and see me with all of our junk, all of our baggage, the stuff that we try to hide in the closet, but God sees like, you know, you think of somebody when they're moving and they have a U-Haul truck full of boxes. God sees all of our baggage, the whole U-Haul. And you know what he still says to you when he sees your baggage? He says this, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. That, that stuff, oh, it's no big deal. I love you. We'll deal with that. I love you. You don't have to get rid of that. I love you. I will take care of it. One of the things that I think it helped me as I was thinking through this this week, I just want to put it in one sentence. I talked about earlier how we, we still have traces of the far country in us when we get home. I think what, what I need to know and what I'm guessing most of us need to know is that when we come back from the far country smelling like the pigsty, that scent of the pigs and the mire doesn't scare our father. He doesn't care. He can handle all of it. We don't need to be afraid. Look at verse 5 again with me. It says this, I will be like the dew to Israel. I will be like the dew to Israel. Now, dew is nourishing. It refreshes, it gives life and vitality, and it's really a symbol of God's favor. Look, look at verse 8. We're going to jump down to verse 8 real quick again. It says, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. In effect, God is saying here in this verse, I'm so tired of idols. I'm so tired of you guys looking to those things for life and security. And then he says very plainly, very clearly, I am the one who answers you. I'm the one who look after you. 
I'm the one who gives you fruit. I'm the one who gives you life. I am the source. Your idols, they don't meet your needs. You've experienced that. You've tried that game and it didn't work. I'm the one who meets your needs. Your idols don't feed you. I do. And God says the same thing to us. He says, I'm your source. Me and me alone. I'm the one who answers you. I'm the one who takes care of you. I'm the one who provides for all of your needs. And I don't know about you, but I continually need to hear this because I continually go looking in all kinds of places for life. Every one of us does this. We run to all kinds of things. For me, an easy one is I find my security and my life in my money. As long as I've got plenty of money, I feel safe, I feel okay, I've got what I need, I'm going to be all right. But the reality is that money is not my God. Money is not a God, period. It doesn't care about me. It doesn't feed me. Money is transient. It's here today, gone tomorrow. God alone is our true source of life and our true source of security. Maybe some of you this morning, you listen to me talk about money and you're like, oh, that's not my struggle. I don't even have any money to look to. But what are the other places that we look? I think another really, really common place that we run to for life and security is other people. Whether it be our friends, especially younger folks, our family, or a significant other. We run to other people thinking that as long as I have them, I'll be okay. As long as they're here, I'll be okay. But the problem is, your friends can love you, but they don't know what you need, and they don't have limitless resources like God. They don't have his wisdom. They don't have his supply. And you may have a family that loves you and praise God for that, but here's the reality. Any one of them could drop dead today. Any one of them. And if you're putting your security in that person, when they're gone, you're going to be betrayed and you're going to be shaking like a leaf, flying around, drifting about, having zero anchor in your life. Family are a gift from God, but they are not God. They were never meant to be. The reality is that God and God alone is our true source. He's our true life giver, our true provider, and Only he is big enough to wear the shoes of God. Anything created, anything temporal that tries to put on his shoes, or let me put it better yet, anything you try to put on God's shoes for, like if you try to take his shoes and put them, put somebody else, put money, put your friends, put your family member, put your wife, your husband, some significant other, try to put them in God's shoes, it will fail every time. Every single time you will end up getting burned. So don't do it. God and God alone can carry that weight. God and God alone can be that rock for you and for me. Only he wears those shoes. So what I've been driving to and what I hope I can make really, really clear today is in this first part of the sermon is this. After we get home, God wants us to know and experience that he is the one that we need. Because as we experience that, and this is key, as we actually go through life and we find time and time again that he's faithful, find time and time again that he is true to his word, 
that experience begins to change us and we get healed of our idolatry. We get healed of all of this unfaithfulness in our lives because we find out that he really is who he has said he is for a long, long time and who he has demonstrated himself to be time and time again in our lives. But we have to experience that for our lives to change. We can read about it, but it's another thing to actually build your life upon it. And as we build our lives upon it, he changes us. And the bottom line of all of these verses is that when we get home, after we repent, God desires to change us with his unrelenting love. He desires to change who we are by giving us all of himself, all of his love, period, no matter what, because he desires for us to change Our invitation from God in this first half of this passage is very clear. What he says to us is, be changed by my unrelenting love. Be changed. Not change yourself, be changed. It's a gift from the Spirit that he offers us, and it's ours to receive, but it's our choice. A while back, I did something kind of random, and Lexi laughed at me when I did this. Um, I was back home, I don't know, like at Thanksgiving or something, and my nephew had a remote control helicopter. And he was flying it around my parents' house. It was like banging into the walls and into furniture and the TV, and it was all over the place. And it was awesome. I was having so much fun watching him fly his remote control helicopter. Well, I got home, and like I get tons of emails for all these ridiculous ads and different things like Groupon and Living Social and all of that. And I happened to read one, and guess what was in the email? It was, hey, buy your own remote control helicopter. So like an idiot, I bought one for like 40 bucks. And so funny thing is, the thing came in the mail months ago. And this week, I was looking around in in our uh, office, and I looked in the closet. And there on one of my shelves is that box that has that helicopter in, in it, and it's never been opened. I've never flown it. It's just sitting there waiting to be used, to be enjoyed. I think a lot of us respond to God's offer to change us like I do with that helicopter in my closet. The gift is ours, it's in our possession because in Christ we've received it, but we don't really do anything with it because we're afraid that the change is going to hurt. We're afraid that God is going to do something that's going to cost us comfort. But the reality is, He's demonstrated again and again that every gift he gives us is for our joy and for our good. It's going to be a lot of fun when I get off my duff and go fly that helicopter. It will be a lot of fun, and it will be good for your soul to open this gift of being changed by the Spirit instead of putting it in your closet, on a shelf, not even caring about it. Open the gift. Be changed by the unrelenting love of God. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. We'll look at the second line of verse 5. So after he says, I will be like the dew to Israel, he says this, He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So God has promised that he's going to be like the dew to Israel. And then in these verses, he talks about the results of being their dew. 
So the first part of the sermon, the first few verses we looked at, it was all about, here's what I'm going to do. I will do this. I will do this. And then he switches gears. In this part that we just read, he's saying, and you, or he, Israel, you will do this. This is what is going to happen after I'm faithful to you. As I'm true to my word and do what I've promised to do, here's what's going to happen for you guys. And then he, sa- he lists a few different things. And the first thing he says in verse 5 is that he shall blossom like the lily. Israel will blossom like the lily. And his point here, we could talk about a lot of facets of this, but my conviction is what he's saying here is that as a result of me being bestowing upon you my favor as giving you life, what will happen in your life, Israel, is you will become beautiful. You will become beautiful. You will become beautiful to me, but you will also become beautiful to the nations around you. The people that you are surrounded by will see you, and they will be so amazed at what I've done in you. And the same is true for us. God longs to make your life, my life, beautiful. He longs for us to be so marked by the love and character of Jesus that it pleases him and other people are surprised and amazed at who we are and how we live. God desires to make us attractive. And I don't mean physically in the sense of normal Hollywood Cosmo stuff. I mean in the way that God defines attractiveness, character, love. Next thing we see here, he says, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, which describes the reality that Israel will become strong and that they will have endurance. And God wants to give us strength. He wants us to have endurance. He wants us to have joy that is so unspeakable that when we go through the midst of life's pain and struggles and difficulties, we stand, and people around us are amazed. They see the waves and the storms crashing on us, but they see us stand. They see us strong in Christ, and they wonder, where does this come from? That's why people, I mean, that's why Peter in, in, in uh, I believe it's First Peter, says, be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in you. When people see hope, They see strength, they see endurance. They don't know where that comes from because they don't have it if they don't have Jesus. He wants to give us that. Next thing we see down in verse 6, he says, His shoots shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive. And I believe that that's describing that there will be new growth, that the nation of Israel will get to a place because of God's work in them that they will thrive and they will increase. Now, I want to be real clear on this next point for us. There's, there's a theological difference in what God has in store for Israel and what he has in store for the church. There were promised blessings to the nation of Israel that involved wealth and a lot of things that were material, physical blessings. And in, in, for the church, while God does want good things for us, his biggest plan and his biggest desire for us is not to make us rich and wealthy. His plan and his desire for us is for us to have true riches, which are riches in him. His his plan for us is to be healthy people, to be people that experience a depth of love and gratitude and just an enjoyment of life that is deeper than any money could ever provide. 
And as he does that in our lives, what happens is that other people see that and they see something that's going on in us. Once again, just like the hope thing, they're mystified. They're just like, where does this come from? And then we have the opportunity to testify of God and his grace and his goodness and his glory to others and explain, my life is so full because I have Jesus. My life is so full because I have a God that loves me no matter what. Let's look down at the, let's see, where are we at now? The last part of verse 6. He says, and his fragrance like Lebanon. And what, what, what Hosea is saying here, what God is saying here, is that Israel will become a nation that is so full of God's goodness and his, and his work that they will give off a pleasing aroma once again, I believe, describing their impact on the surrounding people around the other nations. And what God desires for them is that their very presence will be pleasing to those who are not a part of them. And the same thing is true for us. God desires for your life and my life to be a pleasing aroma to him and to others. People should be in your presence and their faces light up. People should be around me if I'm a child of God and their spirits should lift because I am so full of the joy and the love of Christ. God wants to do that in me. I don't mean that you have some stupid, stupid, silly, like fake happiness. I mean deep abiding joy that translates into a spirit of love that people are pleased to be around you. That's God's plan for your life. That's what he wants to do in us. Let's look at verse 7. This verse is a little tricky. What, what we read here in the ESV is this. It says, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. I'll just stop there for now. That, that translation of this is, is, is not exactly uh, the best translation. I think the, the Net Bible gets it a little bit better. They say that people will reside again in his shade. And re- let, me, let me make the distinction here. If you read it the way the ESV says it, it basically implies that Israel will be again under God's shade. But I think the Net Bible gets it better because they're talking about other people being in the shade of Israel. And so what we're talking about in this passage, it's the metaphor that Israel is like the tree. They are like this olive branch. They are the the plant. And so, like the Net Bible says, what he's saying is, I want you to be so blessed by me and so healthy and flourishing that even the nations around you come and take shelter and refuge under you. Even the nations around you that don't know me are going to be blessed by their encounter with you. And so the point is that God is doing something for Israel that doesn't stop with Israel. He says in verse 7 at the end, he says, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Once again, talking about this life and health. And then we read, Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God intends to do something so amazing in Israel that the other nations hear about it, and it's like the buzz and the talk of the town. And the bottom line is that This passage is talking about a future age 
when God is going to bring Israel back from exile, because what we need to remember is Hosea is all preaching, he's preaching to these people before they go into exile. Remember earlier in the book he said, you're going to go into exile. And then now what he's telling them is, don't be afraid, don't worry, that's not the end of your story. God is going to bring you back and he's going to do something amazing. That's what he's talking about here. And so what he's, what he's telling them is, basically, that promise that I made to your forefather Abram to be a blessing to him and to bless other nations through him, I'm going to be true to that promise. It just kind of, you're going to have to wait a while. <laughs> it's coming down the road. But the key thing for us to understand, I want to just, this is the point. This is the point. God's plan for Israel after they get home does not stop with Israel. It leads out from there into all the other people, all the other nations of the world. And the same is true for us. After we get home, God wants to change us by his spirit. But he also wants to do something through us in the world around us. He wants to change the world around us through us. So your salvation, my salvation, was never meant to be something that I keep for myself or you keep for yourself. It was always meant to be something that we take and we share with the world. It doesn't belong on a shelf. It doesn't belong in a drawer. It belongs on display everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. He wants us to go and tell the world about who he is and what he's done for us. He longs for us to take the shelter and the refuge that we have found in Jesus and go and bring it to the world around us. Because we have friends who are drifting, lost at sea, with no anchor, and we know where the anchor is. We have an opportunity to go and help them find it. That's God's design. The unrelenting love of God has a plan to change us, but it also has a plan to change the world through us. And so God's invitation for us, first of all, is be changed by my unrelenting love. And his second invitation is change the world around you. Change the world around you. Don't just come home. Don't just be changed. Change the world around you. And for us, as a church, we all happen to live in East Dallas or the general vicinity. You know, outskirts of that. And so God's invitation for us is to live for him and to be agents of change right here in East Dallas. That's what it looks like for us. Every one of us is a missionary. We are sent ones by God, called to bring the news that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king, as we just celebrated in song, out on the streets, out on our neighbor, in our neighborhoods, where we live, where we work. Everyone we know, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, they all need to know that Jesus saves, that there is hope found only in him. And God has sent you, and he has sent me to be the one to tell them that. They may never darken the door of our church, but you know what? You are the church, and you go where they are. And God intends for you to be the message and the messenger. Your life is part of what he plans to use to bring truth to the world. It's kind of an intimidating thing, isn't it? But you know what? He's just promised us that he will do the work of changing our lives and conforming them to the image of Christ and making us attractive and pleasing to be around. And so he will be faithful as we go and as we tell. 
and as we demonstrate what it is to know God and be found in him and have the joy of the Lord. So God has commissioned us to go and tell. And he hasn't just given us a message. He has done and he is doing a work in us to demonstrate the truth of what we, we share. We've, we have a message and we are a message. Our very lives. And so what God's inviting us to as a church, I believe, is to change East Dallas. And so the invitation from, from God, from me, is let's change East Dallas together. Let's do this. Let's not just sit in these pews and sing some songs once a week. Let's live Saturday, Sunday through Saturday on mission for God, sharing the gospel, living the gospel with everyone we encounter. God is faithful. He will show us what to do. He will give us the words at just the right moments. As long as we show up and we're faithful, he will do this. He will do it. In Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended to the Father, the last words that he said in that gospel is, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus' final words. You want a job description as a Christian, that's it. Go and make disciples. Not sit at Sunday and worship me. Go and make disciples. But here's the cool thing. He doesn't just tell us this, this, give us this instruction, commission us to go. He also gives us a promise. He says, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as you go, I'm right there with you. As you go, my spirit is inside of you, giving you everything you need. As you go and you, tr- you trust me and I change you, my spirit is going to give you everything you need for life and godliness. So don't be afraid. Don't worry. I will do this. Just be faithful. Let me change the world <coughs> through you. I want to change you, but I also want to change the world through you. Just be faithful. I will be. I'm with you. I want to close in prayer before we transition to the next, next thing. And, and uh, I, just, I just want to say one, one quick thing before I do that. Sometimes I think we hear the imperatives or the commands in the Bible and we strap them on our backs like a heavy weight, like, okay, now i got to go do this. I think that's the wrong way to feel them. That's the wrong way to understand them. If we believe that God is a good father and that everything he does is for our joy, that means even the things he commands us to are for our joy. And so what I want to invite you to pray, and it's something I'm praying, something I'm seeking from the Lord, is to see these kinds of things in the scriptures, these commands to go and make disciples as something that isn't a burden, it isn't this difficult thing that I've got to somehow figure out overnight and do just right. It's an invitation to be involved in what God has been doing for all of history and what he is going to continue to do and culminates with the coming kingdom of Christ. So he's inviting us to jump into the stream of all of history, right into the red-hot center of what he created the world for. This is an opportunity, an invitation to do something that's radically fun, radically pleasing It's not something that we will hate. It's not something that we won't like. It's something that will bring joy to our hearts. Yes, it's scary because people 
when they hear the gospel, they reject it. Yes, it's scary because sometimes we risk being the guy who seems like a street preacher, but it doesn't have to be. God is not asking us to do this in a way that somebody else feels convinced and uh, convicted to do it. He's calling us to do it in a way that he will show us. And as we are faithful to him, he will chart the path for us. We don't have to figure it out. We just got to show up and say, here I am. Let's pray.